I'm Simon Deakin. I'm director of the Centre for Business Research. I'm Boya Wang. I'm a postdoc research fellow for the Centre for Business Research. Simon and Boya, thank you for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series, part two. We're looking at the development of the rule of law in China, your research, corporate governance, institutional environment and firm performance during the financial crash of 2008-09 and your subsequent 2013-14 interviews on different legal institutions for different economic settings. We were earlier, Simon, talking about transitional economies and the rule of law. Is it right to talk about economic reforms and legal systems co-evolving in a piecemeal fashion? Well, I, I think what we see is middle-income countries, once they've reached a certain level of economic development, are quite well-placed to transition to a rule of law and democratic system. It's much more difficult for low-income countries. I think the point here is that formal legal systems are very expensive. One has to invest in legal infrastructure. And there's a kind of endowment effect here. Once you have a good legal system in place, it works, uh, it, it can be more or less self-stabilising. But many low-income countries don't have adequate state capacity, don't have court systems which work. Why is there so much corruption in developing countries which are in that situation? Well, when we talk about corruption, in a funny sort of way, it's often the flip side of trust. So trust is great. Everybody likes the idea of interpersonal trust. Uh, dealing with people you know, you reduce transaction costs. But often corruption is really just the same thing, excluding outsiders, doing deals under the radar, not following the formal rules. So there's a dark side to, to trust. But equally, if, if you like, there's a bright side to corruption. All systems, all economies need norms to function. The market isn't completely self-stabilizing or self-generating, and norms are required, institutions are required for economies to work. Now, my view about corruption is we need to be uh, realistic about it, we need to understand why it exists um, in its many different forms, but also what a dead weight it is for most economies. Right. So many developing economies are held back by corruption. It's very expensive at one level, even if some transaction costs are reduced the deadweight costs of engaging in under-the-counter transactions, under-the-radar transactions, are very expensive and it undermines credibility in, in economic systems. Now, in China's case, what kind of movement are we seeing? I think we identified in our interviews a very strong demand for the rule of law, a demand for transparency and for fair and impartial enforcement of the law on the part of business users and a determination on the part of judges and officials to move to that world. So the idea that somehow a country like China is better off with Guanxi and without the rule of law is, I think, completely wrong. I think people in emerging markets like China and also Russia very much want to have a Western-style rule of law and would prefer to have that to a world in which they have to operate often semi-clandestinely or they can't always rely upon the courts to enforce rules fairly. But it is a transition and it takes many decades. That's right. So this is not something which can happen overnight. So the big mistake in Russia in the 1990s was to assume that once you destroyed the old state socialist system, the market would spring up spontaneously and you would then get a market economy. That didn't happen in Russia. And we, ne we know why, because institutions need to be built 
and preserved and invested in. Milton Friedman himself said this after it was abundantly clear that in Russia there had been privatization, but there wasn't a market economy because essentially the assets were stolen in, in many cases. Okay. Um, now, China had a much more gradual approach to privatization and a much more gradual approach to liberalization. I think they learned from the Russian example, and the lesson they learned was the importance of sequencing and the importance of planning. It must also be said in China's case, there's greater state capacity than there was in Russia, especially after the fall of the Soviet regime, when there wasn't an effective government for many years that couldn't even raise taxes. Okay, So China has an advantage over many other middle-income countries of superior state capacity and also a willingness to use the state capacity to build a market economy in a proactive way, to invest in institutions, but it doesn't happen overnight. And what we have to see is a demand for change on the part of business actors and users and, and officials. Now, I think we begin to see this when they say, actually, we want to see impartial enforcement and we want to move away from grantee-based mechanisms. We do see this beginning to happen. Our interview evidence suggests in some sectors you see it more clearly than in others, in some market contexts more, more clearly than in others. Boyer, this seems to lead into you naturally because you've looked at corporate governance in China today and we've compared it to the past in the previous part of our podcast. But is the corporate governance in China now adequate to deal with things like the current financial crisis? I mean, is it robust? I don't think there's any corporate governance system generally like immune to any external shock. I would think the Chinese uh, corporate governance system so far can be characterized as inside a base system featured by primarily ownership concentration. But the insider-based corporate governance system in China is unique in its own right. It differs from the Japanese model or the German model because the Chinese corporate governance system is related or decided by the premature stage of the financial market development and also the dominance of the state asset in many economic sectors. And so there is a difference perhaps between the private sector, which is growing, as state-owned firms evolve, and the state-owned sector still. The corporate governance structures are different. Even though both sectors are subject to the, the one corporate law, but clearly the practices in both sectors are different. And was there a corporate law passed or a point in time at which China modernised its legal and corporate governance systems? Yeah, I think the, since the enactment of company law in 1993 and also amendment of the corporate company law in 2002, these are the major changes of the, the company law. But at the same time, there are many regulations coming up, many administrative procedures coming up. So the overall corporate governance regime in China consists of not only the laws, but also the regulations and administrative measures. And central government in China, people always think of it as a very centralised state, but there, there are local differences too. But is that different from other emerging markets and European economies, the extent to which China is centralised? Um, I think in, um, in general, the Chinese central state or the Chinese government is much less monolithic than many outsiders would imagine. I mean, historically, the um, autonomy of the local government can be dated back to the central planning era. Even at that time, China was under the central planning economy. But 
the implementation and also the policy feedback were up to the local governors. So at that time, since the I mean, since the 1970s, 1960s, the local governors in China have had like very important influence over the policy making in China. And some American political economists they characterize this situation as the Chinese federalism style. And it's also been spoken about in terms of corruption, local party officials taking bribes. There have been high profile cases by the current Chinese regime to take action against corruption, particularly corporate corruption and bribes. And you've also got a situation in which, in China, the judiciary is appointed through a political system that may not be impartial. The impartiality of the system is in question. Yes, I think since the economic reform in the 1980s, the central government had delegated many of the fiscal and administrative autonomy to the localities as a means of gaining their the support for the reformist leadership. And all these local officers become part of the vested interest in the subsequent reforms. And because of these existing interest groups, they become the major obstacles for the further reforms. And have you anything to say about the judiciary itself? I think even though the whole country, different provinces, are subject to the one legal system, but many of the decision-making power were up to the uh, the local judges. So many court decisions in China differ across different regions. So we have to look at the specific enforcement effect of the laws across different Chinese provinces. And if we looked at corporate governance now, but how many marks out of 10 would you give it? Early on, a decade ago, people were talking about if you invest in China, you can't rely on the rule of law. Can you now, in 2015, rely on the rule of law in China? I think the weak investor protection remains a major concern for many public investors. But still, we see there's major progress in changing this in a positive direction. And we can see like since the new leadership, there are some major corrections or reforms in in the major regulators such as the CSRC, Chinese Securities Regulatory Commission. I think more effort has been put on cracking the insider tradings. Yeah, I think there are some major reforms in different regulations and the administrative procedures. But I think that more importantly, more reforms should be done on the public and the private relations and also how the country is going to reform its state-owned asset management system. You think there, there are improvements and the improvements are significant? Yes, I think so. Simon, would you agree with that? As you say, you've been on the ground in China for some time now and you've been conducting research. Are the regulations in the markets now for big and small companies enough protection? Well, I think what we see is, is as I said before, um, an evolving situation. As I say, demand for legal enforcement. And people expect that as markets deepen, and I'm talking here both about financial markets and product markets, there will be less need to rely upon Guangxi. 
and legal rules will be more effectively enforced. But also the market itself will, will work in a more transparent way. The people we interviewed in 2014, of course some months before the stock market turbulence, were telling us that in particular in sectors like software and in the context of, to some degree, financial markets, the stock market, as markets deepen and as the economy continues to grow, um, greater confidence can be placed in, in the pricing mechanism and greater confidence can be placed in the courts to enforce contracts and property rights on a regular basis. So I think what we see there is something like the, um, the hypothesis or theory we were exploring, which is that middle-income countries, as they grow, and China has had this very significant level of growth, to some degree can be expected to generate demand for the rule of law, demand for legal enforcement, and there will be an institutional and political response. So if this process continues, and I, I would expect it to, then I would expect China also to be making the transition to becoming something a little bit more like um, a rule of law state more like a Western liberal state and less like a rule of law with traditional Chinese characteristics. But I'm just hazarding a guess, and I think it's a very long-term process, and we'll have to see how this goes. And you've also said earlier about Guanxi trust in China and it being evolving, that you know that trust may have involved corruption, but, but we mustn't sniff at it. We must see it as an evolution from an undeveloped state in terms of the law and economics, to a more developed one. But are there differences, not just locally and nationally, but between the product and financial markets? Product markets may be more inefficient, I believe. Well, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think in some ways trade between companies and trade in some markets is becoming much much more like regular trade in the West. Often it was said companies in China don't enter into complicated contracts. It's all word of mouth or trust. But that wasn't what we found. And, and we were able to explore contexts in which complicated transactions involving various types of leasing, for example, in the mining equipment sector, were being entered into. Now, there isn't a, isn't a very long history of this. It's comparatively recent, and many of these new contracts haven't been tried out in the Chinese courts. But the idea that contract formality and contract complexity is something you only find in, in the West is not, I think, correct. So I, I think we, we do see a process of change there. In financial markets, on the other hand, one has to remember that most of the investors in the Chinese stock market, or many of them, have been pure retail investors, and there's been much less of a role for brokers and much less of a role for intermediaries and less of a role for pension funds and institutions than there has been traditionally in the West. So in that sense, the Chinese stock market is very, very different still from American or European stock markets. Because the Chinese themselves are investing as they become more wealthy. It's supposed to be a market which normal people play. Well, there's a, a, a lot of small-scale retail investment in the Chinese market and also in the American market, actually. There's much, much less in the British market and much less, again, in the French or German ones. So different stock markets, different patterns of investment. Certainly, European stock markets are much more institutionally dominated, I think, than either the American or the Chinese ones. So it's, it's, it's difficult to generalise here. Um, of course, it may be that over time, um, as pension funds play a bigger role in the Chinese market and they're being encouraged to, one might see a bigger role for institutional minority investors of the type that you see in the British or American situation. But I don't think we're there yet. Boyer, do you agree with that? And also, you know, the question that people wanted answered is, can insiders play the market and extract wealth in China today? Again, how robust are the financial markets? 
I think insider control is pervasive in both the private and the public sector. However, if the insider control problem can be solved, the law and regulations, the more serious problem is how to deal with the insider control in the public sector. A very unique phenomenon in China is most of these many I wouldn't say most, many of these uh, senior executives in the state-owned enterprises, they have their own administrative rankings, and their rankings are even higher sometimes than the judges in the provinces. So how to maintain the real judicial independence, impartiality, becomes a major concern for the public investors. And this cannot just be solved by the regulatory reform. This is related further to the country's political institutions. Does a lack of protection or trust in these institutions inhibit growth in the future? If we had more reliable company law, if these problems were sorted out, would that improve the economic performance of China's economy? I think a strong investor protection definitely would encourage more capital inflow into the stock market, into the capital market. That would provide funding for the growth for many business sectors. So I would expect there is a positive contribution from the legal development in the future. Simon, do you agree with that? I don't think we should easily accept the argument that China's legal evolution is unnecessary or that achieving something like a a rule of law would hinder China's economic growth. There are one or two voices in the debate which, which argue this. I think it's a dangerous argument, first, because it misunderstands what's been recently happening in China, but also it's very dangerous for the West because if we got the idea that authoritarian capitalism was more successful than uh, liberal capitalism based upon the rule of law, then we would begin to apply the same logic to our own system. I think we have to accept and understand the benefits of a rule of law we take largely for granted, a world in which contracts are generally enforceable and judges are neutral. We take for granted in a country like the UK. We take for granted what in some ways is the most important economic asset we have in, in this country. And we have to defend it and articulate it. But I think this cuts both ways. So people say the rule of law means minimising the state. Yes and no. The point about the rule of law state, it seems to me, is that there's a very clear divide between what's public and what's private. And just as the state doesn't intervene too extensively in the private sector, so a market logic doesn't determine completely either what the public sector does. It's very important to bear this point in mind. And China is, is in some ways characterised by a large state, a strong state, but sometimes a state that's too large is a weak state. And the, the thing to remember about China is that the very clear divide between the public and the private operates differently there. So as Boyer was just saying, in many cases, senior executives also have administrative ranks in, in the party state. The intermingling of the public and the private is a major problem, I think, in many developing economies. So when we say the rule of law, we mean limiting the role of the state in the market, but also limiting the market's role also in the public sector. There's a very important debate we need to have in so-called advanced industrial economies about what the rule of law implies for the way the state is organised and for the public-private divide. I presume that you agree with that too, Boyer, and on the need for further research, because there are many lessons that we still have to learn about emerging economies. I believe there's still no successful model in terms of economics and law in how to go from an emerging economy to 
one which has a more sophisticated rule of law. Yes, I think so. I think we should continue our research and analysis over some endogenous uh, Chinese institutional development in certain areas such as um, the pension system, property right protection system, and also the state asset management system, and also how these institutional development would affect the emerging market sectors, such as some IT and high-tech sectors, because these emerging business sectors play a very important role in maintaining the social stability of the Chinese economy and also for the, the overall economic structure transformation. Simon, work done but still much to do in this China's emerging economy and a need for more research. Yes, yeah, so I, I think we're beginning to, to understand emerging markets better and you, you say, Bonnie, that there's, there's never really been a successful transition. Well, of course, there have been successful transitions from middle-income status to high-income status and those transitions took place in what people refer to as the West or the Global North. These were once low-income or middle-income countries and by and large they did make a successful transition. There's a huge debate about the nature of that historical transition. We need to better understand how Western Europe and North America became as wealthy and stable as they did. Okay, So there's a narrative here which, which of course quite rightly points to a limited state, a liberal state, and to private enterprise, but also part of the story of the rise of the West was, I think, an, an effective state, a strong state capacity, and a strong public-private divide, as I was explaining before. So I, I think when we look at countries like China and also Russia, then we learn something about other countries too. We learn something about the West. So the research we've been doing is about emerging markets and is about better understanding the process whereby markets come to work. Economics as a field very well explains how markets work once they exist, but has been very, very bad at explaining how markets develop, how institutions develop in the first place. Understanding how that process occurs is really critical for the West and for the global North, for this simple reason, that development is not something which stopped in, in the global North a century ago. We are still developing. These economies are themselves changing. So when we look at other countries, we also learn about our own. And could we ever get to a state of equilibrium? I'm sure that as economies grow and develop, there'll be greater equilibrium in the sense that other countries, not just those in Western Europe and North America, will achieve, I believe, stability and, and prosperity. I'm sure that's possible. The idea that capitalism is something only for North America and Western Europe is completely wrong. But equally, how did this process occur? I don't think it's just a question of lifting the burden or removing the state. Right? So when we look at China, China's record over the last 30 years of economic growth has been extraordinary and has outstripped that of any other country in terms of reducing poverty. Right? This is an extraordinary achievement that global poverty has, has been falling over the past 30 years almost exclusively because of China. And global inequality has actually been going down since about 2010, although it's still going up within China. But globally, lifting millions, millions of people out of poverty in China is reducing global inequality too after about 2010. So this is China's extraordinary achievement and we need to understand it better. Um, and the West has to, of course, become accustomed to the idea that other countries can achieve what the West achieved in the past. I think this is an important understanding that we have to arrive at. And where this leads to, um, for the West, I think, is a, a more sober assessment of what's been achieved here and what is, is yet to be achieved in terms of not just maintaining stability and prosperity, but ensuring that the West is able to spread that 
that prosperity and reduce poverty as China did. Think of another word other than equilibrium. I think we, we should be seeing more even development. I think uneven development, a world in which some countries are highly developed and other countries are not developed at all, is a fundamental problem for the world economy. And the sooner we find ways to solve that problem, the better. We're bringing China up to the standards and regulations and rule of law we have in the West is an important one. Yeah, I think so. And I also think the, the concept of rule of law and also differs across different countries. China has its own like a specific historical political context. So uh, we can't just uh, try to impose the general understanding of rule of law in the West into transitional economies like China, India or Russia without taking into account of their specific context. And that's where more research will help. Yeah, I think so. Simon Deacon, Boya Wang, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on your working papers. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie.